You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. All right, so we're going to jump right away into some cases, some interesting clinical cases from uh, my clinic over the past few years. And the point of, well, the, the format of this is basically it'll be all case-based, and each case will be designed to make a few teaching points that are sort of generalizable in the area of skin of color. All right, so here's our first case. This is a 38-year-old Hispanic woman with a two-month history of an itchy eruption on her face and dorsal forearms, as well as lower lip irritation. She had a similar rash last spring, and it improved with over-the-counter hydrocortisone. She has no past medical history. She's been using metronidazole cream for about two weeks since the person she saw before uh, diagnosed her with rosacea. And the social history, she was born in El Salvador, uh, but she's been in the U.S. For, for decades and no recent travel. Just another uh, photo from the side. You can see she has these red, um, juicy plaques uh, with some overlying scale. And actually, if we go back, you can see she has um, some subtle uh, erosions on the lower lip here. So first ARS question, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it rosacea? acute cutaneous lupus, seborrheic dermatitis, or actinic perigo. Don't look ahead on the, on the slides. Ooh, good, we're gonna learn something. So in fact, she had actinic perigo. So, and we'll talk a little bit about what actinic perigo is, but like you, I was concerned about acute lupus, given the fact that this was an eruption in the malar, uh, malar distribution. It occurred in the spring, um, but we did some testing. ANA was negative. She had no anterior or la uh, biopsies, um, antibodies, sorry, and her skin biopsy was not consistent with lupus. It was actually relatively nonspecific. And so we diagnosed her with actinic perigo. So actinic perigo is basically a photodermatosis, and it probably is a variant of polymorphous light eruption, or PMLE, that's particularly common in Native Americans, especially those of mixed ancestry. So ancestry that's bet, uh, mixed between European and Native Indian ancestry. It's often inherited in an autosomal dominant uh, fashion, but can occur sporadically. And so patients develop these very pruritic papules, plaques, nodules. Sometimes they can ulcerate, um, or not ulcerate, but become eroded uh, on sun-exposed skin. And lip and conjunctival involvement is a big clue to this diagnosis. And the lip involvement and conjunctival involvement are more common in Native Americans. And that may actually be the only symptom. Their skin may be fine, but their eyes and lips are affected. So here's a nice photo of the chelitis that you can see in actinic perigo. It's usually limited to the lower lip, which is the, the lip that gets more uh, sun exposure. And this patient, here's an example of the conjunctivitis. And you can see he also had lots of eroded um, papules and papular nodules. So here's another question for you. Which of the following is not an appropriate treatment option for a patient with actinic perigo? Said phototherapy, hydroxychloroquine, topical steroids, 
topical tacrolimus, or strict photoprotection. So, interesting, right? You would think this is a photodermatosis. So why would we treat with phototherapy? You guys are good test takers. Um, but the answer is actually Plaquenil. Plaquenil has never been shown to work in treating actinic parigo or even polymorphous light eruption. We'll talk a little bit about treatment in a second. But for this patient, we used hydrocortisone cream, 2.5% twice a day for three weeks, and she was much better. And we talked about uh, photoprotection, strict photoprotection with physical uh, sunblockers with zinc, titanium, or iron um, oxide. And the plan was to harden her with narrowband UVB next year before the eruption uh, begins. And we'll talk about hardening. So you can prophylactically harden someone with PMLE or actinic perigo prior to um, uh, the, the spring season. So in the late winter or early spring, you bring them in for narrowband. You could do it with PUVA as well. We bring them in for narrowband phototherapy two to three times a week for about 15 sessions. And basically what that does is it exposes the skin to small doses of UV um, and before sort of the, the bigger blast of UV in the spring and summer and just uh, allows them to have that inflammatory response in smaller doses uh, hoping, with the hope that they won't develop the full-blown actinic parigo eventually. They are photosensitive, so you want to start your phototherapy at a dose that's 50 to even 75% lower than it should be based on their skin type, and then increase very gently by about 10% per treatment. You can eventually do 15% per treatment if they're doing really well. And one option is to actually give them prednisone for the first week of the treatment, again, just to dampen the immunologic response. And many patients do quite well with this. Um, the efficacy, again, of antimalarials has not been demonstrated. They've tested them in um, PMLE and in uh, actinic perigo, and they, they haven't been shown to work. So the first teaching point from this case is the fact that the photodermatoses in skin of color are actually quite prominent. So you would think that you have skin of color, so you have more melanin, so you have more inherent photoprotection. So it sort of isn't intuitive that people with brown skin are more likely to have photodermatoses. However, we know that melanin is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's protective, but on the other hand, melanin actually creates reactive oxygen species upon exposure to sunlight. So I guess it stands to reason if you have more melanin, if you do make those reactive oxygen species, they can cause more damage down the line. And so specific subtypes of photodermatoses are more common in skin of color and they can have a different clinical presentation. And so PMLE um, is the most common uh, photodermatosis in both skin of color and uh, Caucasian patients. But in skin of color, the papular or pinpoint variant, I'll show you a photo, is, is much more common. And then another common photodermatosis, chronic actinic dermatitis, is the second most common um, photodermatosis in skin of color. And it's very hard to treat. 
in black patients compared to white patients. So you're much less likely to get a response and to get a durable remission in these patients. And they're more likely to have perigo to, uh, or lichenoid variants of chronic actinic dermatitis. So this is an example of the pinpoint or papular variant of polymorphous light eruption. This is an example of a patient with chronic actinic dermatitis. You can see how he's relatively spared in the nasolabial folds. And if you look un under his neck here, under his chin, um, that area would probably be spared as well. But they get this very striking hyperpigmentation and lichenification in sun-exposed areas prominently on the posterior neck. Um, and, and the face, as well as the dorsal hands and forearms, and they usually have this very sharp cutoff um, in the areas uh, where they have uh, uh, clothing uh, protecting them from sun exposure. And then, of course, we're talking about actinic perigo, which we know is uncommon in, in white populations, but um, tends to occur in people with Native American background. And this is a patient from the literature with actinic perigo, and you can see he looks very much like uh, my patient. Solar urticaria, for example, is much more common in white patients compared to skin of color. And actinic lichen planus, much more common in people from the Middle East and India, rare in people of African descent or Caucasians. Um, HIV photosensitivity, we know, is more common in people of African, of African descent. And drug-induced photosensitivity, there's a, a difference, we believe, by race. So Caucasian patients may be more likely to have phototoxic reactions to drugs, for example, doxycycline, whereas people of African descent are more likely to have photoallergic drug reactions. And there's a question mark there, because it hasn't been adequately studied, but anecdotally, we believe this to be true. And this is from uh, some older literature about adultiasm-induced photodistributed hyperpigmentation noted in African-Americans. Very few people are still on adultiasm, but many people are on calcium channel blockers like amiodarone for management of hypertension. And now that you've seen this picture, take a look when you see patients on amiodarone, 50, 60-year-old African-American women in particular, and you'll see that some of them have this reticulated hyperpigmentation on the cheeks and on the, the, the neck. And that's from there. That's basically a photoallergic reaction. And then let's talk specifically about photosensitivity and photodermatoses in Native Americans. So we actually know that sunburns are more commonly reported among Native Americans than any other non-white racial group. And historically, Native Americans actually applied red clay, which contains iron oxide, to their skin for sun protection. So when the colonizers came over and they saw the Native Americans wearing this iron oxide containing clay, that's where the term red skin came from. So these populations have known for generations that they are sun sensitive. We know that Native American ancestry is a risk factor for photosensitivity in patients with HIV. And as we discussed, actinic perigo, especially with the chelitis, is well described in many different Native American tribes. And, you know, Native Americans in the US, I thought we should talk a little bit about this. According to the 2010 census, there are 2.9 million uh, identified Native Americans in the US populations. And they, these are people who identify as Native American alone. Another 2.3 million identify as Native American in addition to some other race. 
And that distribution isn't uniform across the United States. There are very specific states where you'll see sort of a concentration of Native Americans, but it's important to know that only a small proportion of Native Americans live on reservations, and you know, up to 80% live outside reservations, and actually 60% live in cities. So you are coming across patients with Native American ancestry, and you probably just don't know that. And I, I love this slide because these are all people who identify as Native American. So you cannot glean from someone's appearance uh, whether or not they have Native American ancestry. The only way to know is to ask. And so if you're going to be giving someone phototherapy, um, that should be part of your, uh, your, your, uh, your process. Do you have any Native American ancestry? And maybe you should start um, just a little bit lower in phototherapy to make sure that they are not photosensitive. All right, so our second case. This is a 56-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, diabetes, COPD, and end-stage renal disease. She has a two-year history of scaly plaques on the hands and feet. They're not itchy. She has no joint pains. And she's been treated for eczema and psoriasis with multiple topical steroids and no response. So what would be your next step in her management? Should you check a hepatitis panel? You try a different topical steroid, start dupilumab, phototherapy, or a skin biopsy. Okay, so the majority of you would do a skin biopsy. I actually think that is a reasonable next step. However, she's been applying topical steroids for, you know, two years. So if you were to do a skin biopsy on this patient, I would bring her back in two or three weeks um, after she, you know, take her off the topical steroid, bring, bring her back in two or three weeks, and you'll get a much more accurate um, biopsy. But on that day that I saw her, we checked a, top, uh, a hepatitis panel, and she was positive for hepatitis C because this uh, was necrolytic acral erythema. So basically, her hep C was reactive. We checked a serum zinc, and I'll tell you why, and that was low, it was 35. And as I mentioned, we didn't do a skin biopsy because she was on topical steroids at the time. We did three months of zinc sulfate, 220 milligrams twice a day. Her zinc level normalized, and her skin uh, looked like this after three months of, of zinc. So she responded really well, and we sent her off to GI to have her hepatitis C uh, treated. So let's talk about necrolytic acral erythema. Once you've seen this, you'll see it everywhere. If something is, you think something is eczema or psoriasis and it's not responding to topical steroids, start broadening your differential diagnosis. If you think something is eczema and it's not itchy, it's probably not eczema. So these are all like clues when you know, we, we get very focused in on treating the thing that, that, we're, that we think it is, or someone comes to us and they've been treated for eczema, they've been called eczema for many years, we just continue on and think that our topical steroid is better than our colleague's topical steroid. But this is one of those cases where uh, you really have to stop and rethink the differential diagnosis. So anyway, so necrolytic acral erythema, you can have psoriasiform or eczematous um, rash on the dorsal feet first, and then the hands can become involved later. It may or may not itch. Um, some patients report burning. 
and again, no response to topical steroids. And it can be a presenting sign of hepatitis C, and it's associated often with low zinc levels. So you check a hepatitis panel, particularly C, you check a serum zinc, not a plasma zinc, but a serum zinc level. And you can also check an alkaline phosphatase, which is in the LFT or the CMP panel. Alkphos um, is zinc dependent, so if you have a low zinc level, your Alkphos level should uh, decrease as well. So it's just sort of a confirmatory test. And the treatment is zinc gluconate, 220 milligrams twice a day, which you can prescribe uh, for two to three months. And then they should stop the zinc gluconate because if you take uh, too much zinc, you can actually develop a copper deficiency. So just three months and make sure you treat the hepatitis C. Um, and so some of the, the, the um, keys to necrolytic acrylerythema, say versus eczema, it's how well demarcated this is. Right? Uh, eczema is usually a little bit less demarcated, more diffuse, um, and it, has, it can have this shiny, shellacky appearance to it, but I've also seen it look very dermatitic, very scaly, very much like eczema. All right, here's our third case. This is a 13-year-old girl with a several-month history of hyperpigmented papules and plaques on the neck, chest, back, and upper extremities. She was previously treated with topical terbinafine, selenium sulfide shampoo, uh, and had no improvement. Uh, we did a KOH, which was negative, and her past medical history is significant for asthma uh, and obesity. So this picture of her chest, but you can see it also extended onto her abdomen and her back as well, which isn't pictured here. So which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Tinea versicolor, confluent and reticulated papillomatosis, acanthosis nigricans, psoriasis, or retention hyperkeratosis. Good, confluent and reticulated uh, papillomatosis. Many of you got this one. So CARP um, for short. Uh, so we treated her with minocycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for uh, two to three months, brought her back in two months, and actually she was about 50% better when we saw her um, the next time. And I've seen her since, and she's almost clear. She just has some post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation after four months of minocycline. We also gave her some ammonium lactate, 12%. It was so hyperkeratotic, we thought, well, maybe that could help, but she didn't really use it. And we checked a hemoglobin A1C on her, um, it was 5.1, which is in the normal range. Again, because her differential included acanthosis nigricans, tinea versicolor, the KOH was negative, um, and then CARP. So CARP, uh, its onset is usually during puberty. It's much more common in young women, and black patients are twice as likely to develop CARP uh, versus white patients. And some people wonder if CARP is a form of acanthosis nigricans and therefore an indication of insulin resistance. Um, you know, it is associated with obesity, it's associated with menstrual irregularities, um, diabetes, pituitary and thyroid dysfunction, but actually the majority of patients with CARP are healthy, they're young and healthy, but maybe they're just so young we're not seeing the, the, the metabolic syndrome yet. 
But then other people believe that CARP is a disorder of keratinization, and um, therefore people have tried topical and systemic retinoids with varying levels of success. So we still don't really know what this is and why it responds to minocycline, of all things. But minocycline tends to work quite well. And so, of course, you get lesions on the chest, abdomen, back, neck, and even the axilla. This is one of my patients who had CARP biopsy proven in the axilla. And they get these hyperpigmented papules that coalesce and become confluent centrally, and they're reticulated peripherally, which can, can help you sort of tease that apart from acanthosis nigricans, which is usually a continuous um, velvety plaque. And then we talked about the treatment already. Just this picture was just to show you that confluence centrally, uh, and then it starts breaking up and becoming more reticulated out towards the periphery. And so I treat CARP as a sign of insulin resistance uh, because I think it's an opportunity, um, in a, usually in an adolescent, uh, to have a conversation with the adolescent and their parents about um, about the signs of insulin resistance and the things that they can do in their day-to-day -day life to <clears throat> decrease the risk of this teenager going on to develop uh, diabetes and hypertension. And I do check a hemoglobin A1C in this, these patients. I've never actually had one abnormal. I think this is just, I treat it like a heralding sign. Um, and that's the way I talk to, to families about it. This is something that we can change the course that this uh, teenager is on if we make some modifications to diet. And just a reminder of some of the other signs of insulin resistance, skin tags, acanthosis nigricans. Here you have your typical acanthosis nigricans on the posterior neck. He has a little skin tag here as well. But you can have acanthosis nigricans on the dorsal hands, which is, um, this is the same patient here. And you can have acanthosis nigricans on the cheeks as well. Um, and this uh, presentation of acanthosis nigricans is more common in skin of color in women of African and sometimes uh, South Asian descent. So you see any of these signs, check a hemoglobin A1C and refer them to their PCP. All right, and I will be in the mingle zone if anyone has any questions about these cases or anything else. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.